Welcome to The Rock Podcast. We've begun studying Ecclesiastes, which is one of the most unique and intriguing books in the Bible. King Solomon is reflecting on some of his backsliding years, and he's going to try to convince you to live with an eternal perspective by proving to you how meaningless life is without God at the center. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we're reminded to look to Jesus for our joy and purpose in life. Now, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love. Thank you, Lord, for the truths that we are learning here in Ecclesiastes, that without an eternal perspective, everything's meaningless. Lord, we need to have you front and center in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for eyes that can see and ears that can hear and a heart that can understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on the way home from the city, a long drive, you can turn me down just a little bit, if you don't mind. Coming home from San Francisco, that's much better. Uh, With Pastor Adam on Monday night, uh, Pastor Adam asked me the question, uh, how are you finding Ecclesiastes? Because he's with the junior hires. And, you know, he said, well, what a tough book. What an intriguing, unique book. How are you finding it? And I said, I'm enjoying, but it took a while to get my bearings here because it's so unique and intriguing. Just have to kind of understand the purpose of the book is is really to dissuade the readers from a life without an eternal perspective, really. And I I told them that it's kind of surreal to be sort of arguing with King Solomon a little bit. Because that's what you have to do. Because King Solomon's in a funky place. He's kind of backslidden. He's trying to make sense of life without walking close to the source of life. And whenever you do that, you're going to have a lot of frustration, uh, not a lot of joy, not a lot of sunshine, a lot of clouds and confusion. And so I said, you know, once you, once you establish the, the purpose because he's saying everything's meaningless because he's not walking with God, right? But we know as Christians that everything's meaningful, everything. So you have to amend the words of a diminished pr- perspective uh, is giving you diminished ideas. And so you have to kind of amend that with the gospel. Once you figure that out, that, li- that you can say back to him, no, no, wait a second, life is full of meaning. Jesus said... Uh, For example, our words have meaning. He said, every idle word, men will give an account. Therefore, if we give an account for every idle word, then words are very meaningful. If he says the Lord is going to judge the secrets of our hearts, then our thoughts, our private thoughts, have meaning. And if Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, If you're out of sorts with somebody and it's kind of in your power to make it right, then leave your offering in your wallet or in your car and get it right and then come and worship me. So if he's saying that, then we know that relationships have meaning. Our deeds have meaning. 
Work has meaning, everything. And so once we understand that this poor guy has kind of compromised uh, himself spiritually by doing what God told him not to do, and he got all confused. So uh, Ecclesiastes, therefore, is a tract meant to expose the folly of life without the life giver. One more little thing. If, as Acts chapter 17 says, Paul speaking, if in him we live and move and have our being, then it comes, to, uh, you, would, you would say, you know, it would be obvious to say that without him, we don't move, we, we don't go anywhere, we don't live, we don't have much of an existence without him. And so it's a call to all double-minded agnostics, backsliders, would-be fence walkers, game players, welcome to a life that doesn't make any sense <laughs> Without God, a life that could never satisfy. So chapters one through six, we've been through an exhaustive, really uh, calculated search through the best the planet Earth has to offer without God, and he's come up empty. And he says it's monotonous and frustrating. Now we're in chapter seven. So he's going to move from the, the search, the meaningless of life to offering us some advice. And even the advice, it's good and solid. It's very good. But sometimes uh, it, it's kind of stunted. You know, we just because of his diminished perspective, we have to add the gospel to it. All right. Uh, but it's good advice. We've already seen some of this advice. Now he says, let me give you some advice for this meaningless life. Uh, these few days that God has given you, he, he says, there are some things that make this kind of crazy life better. So you should do the better thing. And so we already saw a little bit of that in chapter 7, opening up. He says, sorrow can be better than laughter. In this, a sobering experience is better for your soul than frivolous entertainment that doesn't speak to your heart. The second thing he said, he said is, sometimes being rebuked offers more of a blessing than being praised. And that's just sort of obvious. Uh, and then number three, he said, the long haul can be better than taking shortcuts. And so it was a shout out to, uh, in praise of uh, patient endurance. And then the last thing he said, and before we dive into new material, is he said, wisdom is better than wealth. Uh, because money's no good if there's a fool at the helm of the vessel. Uh, as Jesus would say, what does it profit somebody if they gain the whole world but forfeit their own soul? And so that was sort of his point there. So he said, there are some things about this life, crazy as it is, that are better than other things. And now he's going to give us five really golden nuggets of wisdom, five pieces of wisdom that will really help make or break your life under the sun, as he likes to say. So let's pick up here at verse 13 and check out these five pieces of wisdom. So starting at verse 13, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. And so let's take a look at what he's talking about. So note takers, number one, the first golden nugget of wisdom would be flexibility. Go with God's flow. 
deal with the reality of what God's sovereign hand has dealt you. Let go of the reins and yield to what God has allowed or disallowed uh, for you. Now, Warren Wiersbe says right away, this is not advocating some kind of slavish fatalism. He says it's a sensible invitation to a life yielded to the will of God. He said, you need to cooperate with what is real in your life, not what you want it to be. Uh, uh, There's a bumper sticker. There's a whole brand it's called No Bad Days. I've got a little sticker for you. You've seen it. It came about a couple decades ago. A guy was uh, in Cabo, and he was a fisherman. He probably still is. And he came up with the slogan because he loved Cabo. He loves to fish. And if you've been to Cabo, I have not, but my friends have been there, and they say, boy, it's, it's just like... Hawaii, it's just just paradise. And he came up with, there's just no such thing as bad days there, right? You're fishing, you know, the sun is shining, the palm trees, the whole deal. And, you know, I guess you'd be catching a lot of fish on that day for no bad days, right? (laughs) So he came up with that. The problem with that is is that it's not true. It, it, It can't happen because in Cabo... When you say no bad days, there's no such thing. Well, you live in a fallen world. And then back in 2003, there was Hurricane Marty, speaking of hurricanes, came in and wiped out 4,000 houses. It's a small storm, comparatively uh, speaking. But, you know, there was a bad day there, you see. And so God's people seem to think I can come to Christ. and, And thank you for that. You can put the scripture back. Uh, And then there's no bad days. And then when you have that mentality and then the bad day comes, you get all crazy. Why did you answer my prayer? Why is life taking this turn and that turn and all of that? So he's saying wisdom. Number one, learn to roll with the punches or get punched out. So he says, (laughs) enjoy the good days and make best of the bad because God is essentially the author of, of both. Now, Job taught us that, right? When his wife was just saying, I can't believe you're still a Christian. I can't believe you're still praising God and keeping your faith. Look at our life. Our life has been turned upside down. We don't have kids anymore. You don't have your health. We don't have our possessions. Our bank account is empty, and you're sitting there holding on to your integrity and praising the Lord. And he said, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we ex- accept only the good things from God and not the bad? He allows some of the bad things to happen in our lives for his purpose. So God is in charge. He's at work in the world and in our lives, and he's sovereign. His kingdom rules over all, Psalm 103 and verse 19. Destiny is pretty hard to wrestle Your destiny is hard for you to fight against. So when something is allowed to go crooked in this verse, meaning bad or off or a surprise turn that you don't like, Solomon advises, accept it. I mean, he's not talking about uh, that we don't 
right wrongs or we don't relieve suffering or if we've made a mess that we don't take responsibility for it. He's not talking about that. He's saying that the road, your road took a turn, a bend, and it's a God-ordained bend. And you don't like the bend and you didn't see it coming. You don't appreciate it. Well, what are you going to do about it? You're going to fight and fight. You're going to drive yourself crazy trying to, you know, God's steering this way, and you're trying to steer it this way. This is, he's saying this does not make any sense, people. Along with the good, plans fail. Visions die. Relationships sour. Trouble finds us. Adversity weaves in and out of our lives. We have crosses to bear. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. Jesus had a spike through his. My grace is enough. God is working. You know, can you open a door that God closes? Trust me. Do not open a door God has closed. Amen? You don't want that door to open. Warren Wearsby again. This is one of my favorite guys to go to. If God makes something crooked... He's able to make it straight, and perhaps he will ask us to work with him to get the job done. If he wants it to stay crooked, we had better not argue with him. We don't fully understand all the ways God is working, as Solomon here alludes to. Who knows the future? You don't know what God is doing with the bend. But we do know that he makes all things beautiful in its time, and that from our perspective, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and call according to his purpose. And so this includes things we think are twisted and ugly. Now, uh, to be honest with you, I'm going to tell you that for a long time in my life, I saw something that could take a, a nasty turn. And for years, I just had an inkling that it might go that way. And for years, I prayed Lord, please have mercy. Don't let it go that way. And guess what? It went that way, and it's been that way. With no sign of it being the crooked, being straightened. But I remember after realizing that it's officially bent now, the way that I had just envisioned and prayed against and worked against, and I remember saying to the Lord, I totally trust you. I totally trust you. Uh, you know what you're doing. This is, I'm not in charge of the universe. I, I can't even figure out what I'm going to have for dinner, you know, <laughs> let alone try to run my own life. God knows what he's doing. So, so if you're trying to just trying to straighten when he's crooked, made crooked, good luck to you. It's just, just, just Solomon says, listen, People who can't bob, you, you know, bob and weave, you know, you kind of do this kind of thing, the boxing move. People who can't bob where they need to bob and weave where they need to weave in God's providential care over their lives usually are bitter, they're broken, they're anxious, and they end up confused and abandoning the faith. So bend where God bends and look for the silver lining, believer, because there always is one. And there is a saying that goes with this. I don't like it in the world, but it is what it is. 
All right? And everybody likes to say that. It is what it is. Maybe not what you had in mind for your life or wanted to happen or desire, but it is what it is until God changes it. His grace is enough. Bender be broken. Let's move on. So the first one, flexibility. Number two. In this meaningless life, Solomon, it's very meaningful. Should we go over it again? No. <laughs> In this meaningless life of mine, he's saying, since I've sort of backslidden, I've seen both of these things. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is a good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. I really like this one, too. So a concession here. He says, yes, accept your God-given circumstances, the bend in the road. But isn't it crazy? Isn't it a little strange? He's saying, life isn't really fair. So he, he's saying, I'm not saying that it makes sense that your road gets bent, right? So he's saying, for example, so he's saying, a call for moderation and balance in a world that gets so topsy-turvy that you're going to need some balance. So avoid uh, obsessing to extremes. And he's going to give a couple examples. So in light of the fact that you're not in charge of the universe or even your own life, you have very little control. Uh, and in light of the fact that things don't always pan out in a broken, fallen world, uh, two plus two doesn't always equal four. It really does not. And that's what he's saying. Good guys sometimes lose and the bad guys win. How does that make any sense in life? And so he's saying, listen, uh, without an eternal perspective, uh, it does look like the good, the good guys have it worse than the bad guys. But with an eternal perspective, Psalm 73 and verse 17 says, nothing in this life will make very much sense to you until you go into the sanctuary, open up the scriptures, and see the destiny to see the end result of everybody's lives. Then you can understand. Because the story's not over. The story's being told right now. The story's going on. So verse 15 says, take an example of what I mean. Good people are suffering, dying young. Evil people are thriving and living long. So he's <laughs> going to give some advice based on this crazy world in which we live. So he's saying, since life is unpredictable, so you can't say, well, I'm going to work hard and save up all this money and I'm going to live to save up the money because you just don't know because a lot of times there's this paradox and you lose all the money. So, so he's saying, uh, watch how you live. For, uh, in other words, he's saying, um, you've noticed life is unpredictable a lot. Uh, there's no guarantees. So, for example, the health food advocate dies of cancer or the triathlete gets a heart attack falls over on the track in perfect shape. The rich guy goes bankrupt, and the religious guy, evil things happen to Christian people. So he says, since life doesn't always add up, you need to chill out 
and avoid extremes. In other words, loosen your grip. Uh, running 10 miles a day, eating only what rabbits eat, all right? <laughs> uh, uh, work, working 14, 15, 16 hour days, building up your nest egg, and that's all you live for. No days off, no vacations, money, money, money. He's saying, uh, you see, because it doesn't work the way you think it does, because there are some surprise twists and turns. Uh, overrighteous. He says, don't be overrighteous. So he says, what, are you going to turn into a, a, a monk and be monastic? You're going to go up to the mountain with your fasting and your praying. You're going to isolate. And guess what? There's going to be fighting between you and the other four monks up there. All right? Your troubles will follow you. And because your sin nature goes and wherever you are, you're going to have a problem because guess what? You're there. Now, so how much when he says over-righteous, what does it mean to be over-righteous? You've met over-righteous people. Come on, the Pharisees are over-righteous. Over-righteous is, is when you're more zealous than Jesus. Have you ever met those people? They're out there. They can't have a conversation without every third word, Jesus. And Jesus is a beautiful name. And Jesus should be a part of our conversations every day, but not in every sentence. <laughs> right? Because then you couldn't go to work and you couldn't do anything else. But there are people like that. And he's saying, uh, you, you don't need to do that. Uh, over too much zeal over righteous is when your husband is coming home every night and you're out serving in some ministry every single night of the week and he comes home to a cold dinner and then his secretary offers to bring him a hot meal that is we just happened to know uh, 25 years ago a situation like that so I'm just speaking it out Watch out for that. That's overzealous. So he says, overwise. You think you're going to figure life out, but through books and conferences, you got this all figured out. You're going to memorize all the formulas. He says, you're going to, hey, Mr. Einstein, it won't matter how much time you burn those gears over and over and over again. You have very little control over your happenstances in life, and it's not going to come from you being the so smart. You're the smartest one in the company. You're the smartest one here and there at the school. You're four point. You're four point. You only can have a four point oh. I'm sure you can have more than that. But you want a four point five. He's saying that's crazy because that's you're acting as if everything depends on you. That's what pagans do. So when he says fear God, look at him, Solomon. I'm so proud of him. He says, fear God, if you have a reverence for God, that you don't need to be, you know, counting every single calorie and, and, and working every single hour and doing everything because God is taking care of you. You're not in charge of your life. So you can avoid this kind of burnout obsessiveness because it's to no avail anyway. That's his point. Even if you do it, and it's a good thing. You're, you're, you're not guaranteed that you're going to achieve the result of all of that obsessive effort. So he says, have some wisdom to show restraint. 
Now, here's the disclaimer here. He's, he's going to say, oh, and, and on the other hand, don't be over wicked. Now, that sounds like he's saying you can be a little wicked. <laughs> but <laughs> as long as you don't plunge, head, plunge headlong into total depravity, he's not saying that. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, uh, I'm not implying go ahead and throw out all wisdom and moral disciplines and play the fool. And, you know, to go all the way the other end. That's all he's saying. And that wouldn't make sense to be a glutton, a drunk, a lawbreaker, or an undisciplined life. Uh, here's a nice proverb. I love this proverb. He says, I'm advocating balance. Grasping one without letting go of another. This is beautiful. He's saying, and the way you do that, I'll explain the idiom. But the way you do that is to fear God and you'll avoid all extremes. Because as I've been alluding to, the man who's burning the midnight oil doesn't have a father who cares for the sparrows and the lilies of the field. I mean, there's, there's something to be said for working hard and you have seasons of that. But it's not all on your shoulders. So you don't have to live in that kind of obsessiveness. The great physician is the one who keeps you healthy. So you have to read every single ingredient on every single thing and look at every... There was a day, ladies and gentlemen, when people would come over people's houses and just eat food. <laughs> if you have a food allergy, God bless you and make sure we all know about it. But I'm talking about a day when, when people just ate everything and anything. And I can hear you just saying, and they're all dead now. <laughs> There was a day when we walked around and we didn't have our water bottles. We really didn't. We didn't have any water bottles. I remember when I first saw water bottles, somebody was like, do you have a condition where you need to be? Yeah, you know, we just get crazy and we're doing these obsessive things and we're going to make it happen, make it happen, make it happen. And he says, would you revere God and have some balance? Oh, that felt so good to get that off of me. <laughs> now... <laughs> now the Christian accepts this. Get a load of this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Christ is our righteousness. Amen. So why are you acting like your salvation depends on you? Am I advocating a slothful Christian life? I'm just saying we can enjoy, we can rest in his love. It's not up to me. He said, Christ is your righteousness. That means when you stand before God and God says, what's up with your righteousness? Christ. What? What's up with the wisdom, Ross? Christ is my wisdom. That's what it says in the book. First Corinthians chapter one, read it tonight before you go to bed. It's the last few paragraphs. He says, Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our wisdom. So take a deep breath. Have some balance. I gotta, gotta, gotta. He says, listen, it's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Rest in his love, work with all your heart. Trust in the Lord and do your part. Pray for the blessing and get to work. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Serve the Lord and serve your family. You see, grab the one without letting go of the other. Balance, balance. Number three, 
Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. You know, there's not a righteous man on the planet who does what is right and never sins. So don't pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Ouch. Okay, so here we go. More wisdom. And uh, this third uh, piece of wisdom will be called grace to overlook offense. So we've got some flexibility to roll with the punches of God-ordained punches in our lives. And then moderation and balance to avoid extremes because it's God at the helm, not us. And now grace to overlook offense because in this life, nothing will upset you. Nothing will, will, will ruin your day. Nothing will ruin your family. Nothing will ruin the work environment or the church when people have got their nose out of joint with somebody else, when there's some bickering and some fighting and some fussing and all of that. So the Bible has a lot of information about how to get along with other people. And the first rule of thumb is is that to acknowledge that everybody is broken. There's not one whole person on the planet. There's not one person who doesn't sin. So with that in mind, including you, that it will bring you some humility, some patience, some forbearance, some grace to know that the very thing that ticks you off about somebody that you got all up in arms about is the very thing that you do all the time. And the thing you complain about the guy in the traffic He just, you know, didn't signal until the very last second, you know. And then five minutes later, your wife is like, are you going to signal or what? You know, because you're doing the same thing. But our sins look so much worse on somebody else. Oh, it's just so nasty. And so, so he says, this is wisdom. He says, if you want power more than 10 warriors... If you're just smart with God's wisdom, because you're going to need it to deal with people, because he's saying everybody's messed up, everybody's broken, everybody's going to offend you. Every single person is going to fall short and say something they shouldn't have said, or text something about you, or or email something about you, or blow off a little steam, and you're going to hear it. Well, what are you going to do with that? Well... If you realize that everybody's broken and even you, verse 20, everyone falls short. There's no, no one righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, quoting Psalm 14. What an interesting implication to go easy on others because everybody is flawed, including myself. And so, you know, so you may hear somebody say, or you get a text I got a text once it was meant for uh, somebody else, but it was about me. <laughs> haven't, haven't you got that? That's a pretty common thing because they're thinking about you as they're talking about you, and then they just go down and hit you instead of the person that they're gossiping about you too. <laughs> Listen, so-and-so thinks the whole world revolves around them. So-and-so thinks uh, they're always right. So-and-so is a big baby. So-and-so is, 
So-and-so is self-absorbed. So-and-so thinks it's their way or the highway. Oh, pushy, 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 right? Listen, that could be said of every last one of us in this room at our, at our worst moment, right? Yeah, that was a sneeze, not a like... Not a bad reaction. I just thought, I said, could that be said of you? No. (laughs) At our worst. And so what's the remedy? In one ear and out the other. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said to his seminary students in the 1880s. He said he wrote a whole chapter on this verse, and he entitled it The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. He advises pastors and Christian workers especially to simply overlook unkind and thoughtless things others say and do. We would not want to be judged by our worst moments. We should not judge others by theirs. And so he's saying, could you spare us all from a big drama, a big Woe is me when you find out somebody actually said something critical about you. Could you just not go into a huge uh, prosecutorial thing where you're going to just milk this thing until they wish they were never born? (laughs) I'll show them. You know, he's just saying, listen, here's the way to stop it. You're guilty of the same thing, so pipe down. Let's let it go in and out and forget about it. God will take care of you. God's your vindicator. God knows the truth. That's what he's saying. He said, listen, you'll have less acid reflux. You, you, you will have better health. You will have a happier work environment. You will be happy. You will sleep better. Listen to him. Don't pay attention to every little word. Just let it go. Amen? All right. Number four. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it's far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So here, scholars are saying that this paragraph, this couple verses, and the one to follow, the last one of the chapter, He's starting to admit subtly that he has failed, that he has wisdom and he's looked for meaning apart from walking with God, and he he just can't figure things out. And so he says, you know, I thought it could make sense of all of this. And so the nugget, number four, would be humility to admit failure. So he says, you know, wisdom without God is no wisdom at all. He says, he's kind of saying, I had wisdom. I thought I had wisdom. But wisdom unapplied. If you don't use the wisdom that God gives you, what good is it? It's folly. You have to practice what you preach. So let's finish up. Last paragraph and last nugget of wisdom This gets interesting, ladies and gentlemen. So I turn my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. And I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. 
The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I've discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things while I was still searching but not finding. Listen, he interrupts himself. I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. <laughs> this, <laughs> these are Solomon's words, <laughs> not mine. I have nothing to do with this. This only have I found God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. And so here we go. Last tidbit of wisdom from chapter seven, closing out. Be mindful of your Achilles heel, of your kryptonite. Oh, everybody has kryptonite. It's the substance that you just are uniquely vulnerable to. You've got to be careful about that. So here's the veiled confession. And scholars are saying he's kind of on a rant. What started this? Well, he started to say, well, I'm a failure. I thought I could understand life. I thought I could work this out. I thought I could play with fire. I thought I could do what God told me not to do and have 700 wives and 300 concubines. I thought I could, but I failed. And now the relationship to venting about his sexual immorality and his angst with some of the women that kind of uh, helped him along the way uh, to his ultimate demise. So let's talk about this. In First Kings, a beautiful life. He had wisdom. Something goes wrong. He had a problem with women. That's pretty obvious. 700 wives and 300 mistresses. That's a lot of shoes, right? <laughs> we talked about that. <laughs> and so his Achilles tendon was he never met a, a pretty face that he didn't marry, essentially, <laughs> right? So Solomon seems to be saying, when I start really thinking about it, and look in your text, verse 25, stupidity of wickedness and madness and folly, it got me thinking of hmm, my life. My life, he says. And the most bitter, verse 26, the most bitter the word is like poisonous, hurtful, stinging in his own heart. It really means the biggest regret to me is not women in general. Because in Proverbs, he speaks highly of, of women. Women, uh, the, the wise woman, Proverbs 31 comes off of his pen. A wisdom is a lady. He speaks highly of women. He's talking about uh, bad girls. He's talking about, he's talking, I don't know, I don't know, what's her name? Jezebel. That's who he's talking about. Now, he's not talking about noble women. So Solomon, first of all, truth be told, he's entrapped by his own lusts. He's enslaved by his own passions, which opened the door to his spiritual uh, demise. Now, God is always willing, you know, he says, listen, if, if you find God's favor, guys, you won't fall for the seductive woman. You won't because you want to please God and that, that, that makes God show you the way out. 
He's really saying 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where he says, no temptation has come your way except what is common to everybody, and God is faithful to not let you be tempted beyond what you are able. But with that temptation, every single time, with the temptation right there is a way of escape every single time. And if you want to please God, God's happy with that. God will make sure that you see the exit ramp right there. Whether or not you put on your blinker at the last second, <laughs> if you put on your blinker and exit and take the ramp, that's, that's really kind of up to you with God's strength helping you. But he's saying, that didn't happen for me. I didn't take the escape. I did the stupid thing. And now, you know, listen to what he says. He thought he could play with fire and not get burned. He thought it could be the exception. Oh, I'll keep this in check. I'll keep this in check. You know, he could outsmart because he was the smartest guy on the planet. So he said, I'll, I'll be able to juggle this. I'll be able to, I'll legitimize it. Hey, it's not lust. I married her. Right? It's not lust. I married her too. It's not lust. I married her too. It's not lust. I married her too. And we could go on for a year. He tried to legitimize his lust. He tried to justify with his mind what his heart condemned. And it's no coincidence that he says, out of a thousand, oh, we're not, what's that number? A thousand, because he said a thousand women, right? Out of a thousand, he's saying, I didn't find an upright one among them. Oh, hold on, Mr. Solomon. Some commentators have some words for you. It says, listen, a thousand women, this is what he's trying to say. Couldn't this be what Solomon is saying? I tried a thousand times to make something work that God said would never work, and I got a thousand dead ends, right? So one writer, Kidner, he said this. Solomon's fruitless search for a woman he could trust may tell us as much about him as his approach as about any of his acquaintance. Hold on. His fruitless search for a woman he could trust may tell us as much about him as his approach as about any of his acquaintance. I understand that. Let me explain that to you, okay? It's saying Solomon ran after beautiful, idol-worshiping women who knew nothing about the God of Israel or his commands or God's love. And he used these women. He denied them proper position as wives. They were just as playthings. And then he just kind of, you know, flung them aside at any moment. So it's not surprising that Solomon's impression of the women in his life is unfavorable. And we might imagine that they, with him as a representative male, may have the same negative impression of men. So if these ladies are thinking that all guys are like King Solomon, it says, hey, you want to get married? You know, you get married and say, oh, by the way, I'm going on a honeymoon next week with my next wife. You know, how is she supposed to feel? So, you know, he's saying, listen, I try to make it work. It's a thousand ways and a thousand different times. It came up short. 
And, and you know, it would have been nicer to read Solomon that you just kind of owned it instead of kind of ranting about women. And then, you know, what's the one shout out? Well, I found one guy in a thousand. You know, would that be you? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it would have been done to say, to acknowledge his own stupidity, madness, and folly without uh, lashing out. Which gender is more prone to character flaws, male or female? The answer the answer is, for all have sinned and fallen short, for there is none righteous, no, not one, no man, no woman. And thankfully, the God-man tasted death and became the sin of all men and all women. And together, broke down the barrier between us so that Colossians says, you know what? In Christ, there's not even male or female. We're Christians. So he took away our unique, distinct proclivities and vulnerabilities to sin, and we have them as genders. And he took them away, and he, he became them so that he could present us, male and female, in him, beyond maleness, beyond femaleness, Christians, blood-washed, new creations. It's a beautiful thing. Together, we are men and women joined to Christ, joint heirs, children of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. Thank you for these five pieces of wisdom, very important. Help us, Holy Spirit, to cling to the things that are good and hate the things that are evil, to love the things you love, to hate the things you hate. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be more apt to do that more effectively with these five wise traits. Flexibility. Bend with God's providence in your life. Balance. Keep God as the center ballast. Avoid those extremes. Let him do the work. Three, grace for people who offend you. Let it go. You want to be forgiven? Then you have to forgive. Humility to admit failure and take responsibility. And then wisdom and awareness to know your weak areas. What's your Achilles heel? And then guard it. Don't take a job in a bar if you're an alcoholic. We do stuff like that, though. Let's pray. Father, we just give you our hearts once again. Just ask that you go with us now in peace. Help us, Lord, to be wise. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. 
If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.